I think undoubtedly the most difficult question that, we've, th- that we're going to tackle here this morning, the last one. And it's great because now we've lost 15 minutes. So that means there's not going to be any time for Q&A at the end, which is perfect. However, however, we do have Q&A next week. So we've got an elders Q&A. If you have questions pertaining to this class, we've talked about apologetics and evangelism. I'm sure there'll be questions coming out of this. Um, feel free to email me directly, and then we're going to seek to answer some of those questions next Sunday. So if you can, please try to have those questions in uh, by Thursday at the latest. That way I can kind of organize them and get them out to the elders so that we're not just shooting from the hip and trying to answer your question on the spot. So please submit those to me. Uh, Some of you were in the parenting class, which is completed now. Feel free to ask questions on parenting, apologetics, and evangelism. Or if there's other questions that are nagging, we're not going to necessarily turn them away. Um, but as I said, there will in, undoubtedly, I'm sure, be questions from this topic. And I think it's, it's kind of, as I was thinking this week, you think of the Christmas season, all the smells and bells and bright lights, right? Uh, the celebrations, you've got all the glow and the cheer and the eggnog-scented parties, right? And yet, at this time of the year, for many people... It's a very difficult time of the year. Uh, For some of you, it's likely a very difficult time of the year, even as you reflect on the losses that you've endured or the losses that you are continuing to endure, the suffering that you are undergoing even in this present day. And so for many, Christmas is, uh, on the one hand, a time of celebration. On the other hand, it's a time of intense groaning, of lament, of sorrow. Uh, as they lost, as they grieve, lost parents, uh, lost friends, lost siblings, lost relationships, lost jobs, all sorts of suffering. And it reminds us then that we live east of Eden. Right? We live on this side of Genesis three, this side of the fall, and that is we live in a world that is groaning, as Paul talks about in Romans eight. It's a world that's groaning for ultimate redemption. Paradise has been lost, and yet. This is the world that God created and into which the Son of God willingly came, which is what we celebrate here even as we consider the first advent, that the Son of God left his throne above and willingly came and has endured all sorts of agony, suffering, even the full weight of sins uh, for his people. And so uh, as we consider that, that's going to be the main framework that's going to help us understand how to uh, assess and to interact with this God and the problem of evil question. Uh, The birth narrative, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, the birth narrative, of course, celebrates the coming of the promised Messiah. And at the end of the birth narrative in Matthew's gospel, we are reminded just why Jesus came and took on flesh. Even as we see and hear the weeping of mothers in Israel. So in Matthew chapter 2, remember the Magi, they come to Herod, they announce that the king has been born, and then Herod, well, Herod doesn't want any rival to his throne, right? He's, he's a wicked man, and so this news was unwelcomed by Herod. And Herod, like his father the devil, devised what he thought was a plan to then thwart the plans of God and to rule over the Messiah. And so we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, Then Herod 
when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So as I said, Christmas is a time when we think of all the kind of happy things. But actually here, right, right around the arrival of the Messiah, within two years of that, there was this mass destruction of children, of, of little boys, two years old and under. And so we see right there the wickedness of a man, of moral evil, you know, staring us in the face. And you can imagine the angst and the turmoil that even these mothers in Israel were feeling. I, I'm sure, with a little bit of creative imagination, or maybe not so creative, you can imagine the mothers there asking the why question, right? Why, God? I thought you were good. I, I thought you were in control. I thought you had plans for the good of your people. And, and this is what we get, dead children. And as it was there even in Jesus' day, so it is today. And it goes even further back, of course, pre-incarnation, all the way back to Genesis 3. Suffering and evil of all shapes and sizes litters the landscape of history. And we all feel it in one way or the other, and that leads us to ask the question, why? Or in the language of the psalmist, how long, O Lord? There's a sense of lament, of even disgust, of confusion. Why is it that evil continues? So indeed, as I said, paradise has been lost. These are the days of groaning and loud lamentation as one of the only things that seems to be a constant in our world is the fact that we will suffer and we will see other people suffer as well. Right? There's not many things that you can count on in life, but one thing that you can count on is that you will suffer and you will witness the sufferings and evil done by others. And thus we come then to what is sometimes called the Achilles heel of Christianity. The Achilles heel, God and the problem of evil. It's a problem for the fact that Christians have always confessed that God is both perfectly good, that there is no evil in him. So he's perfectly good, and he is simultaneously infinitely powerful, omnipotent as the sovereign God, and yet evil still exists. And so how does that fit together? In our minds, it doesn't seem like it can. If we've got a God that's perfectly good and a God that's perfectly powerful and yet evil exists, those things don't fit together. They don't work like a jigsaw puzzle should, or at least from our perspective. And the formal articulation of this problem goes back uh, at least to Epicurus, who lived in uh, 341 to 270 BC, and many others have followed suit since then. So the skeptic philosopher David Hume, he put the problem this way, which is kind of the classic uh, way of framing the problem. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent or not powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? From whence then is evil? 
Right? So it's a, it's a conundrum. And that leads us then to the question of theodicy. Theodicy, which is uh, what we're going to, I think, on your second point there, the question of theodicy. The response to this question, this kind of conundrum, this problem, or the problems of evil, is known formally as a theodicy, which derives from a, two Greek words put together, theos, which is God, and dekeo, which is justice or uh, justify. So it's, the, it's the word we use for justification. So literally, what a theodicy is, is it's an attempt to justify the ways of God, to, to see how is it that God is still in the right given all the evil and suffering around us. Um, and, and it's a question that Christians have and continue to wrestle with. You, you continue to wrestle with. And there is both a cognitive, so thinking of terms of arguments, like formal arguments that we can think of, but there's also an existential or a personal kind of experiential aspect to this. And I want to deal with both of those. So we'll deal with kind of the head, the formal arguments a little bit. But on the back end, I, I really want to emphasize the kind of how we enter into the experience of suffering ourselves as well as helping one another suffer even under the sovereignty of God. I, I think that's actually more pertinent to this question than a lot of these formal arguments are. It's good to have arguments. The Bible lays out an entire narrative, as we're going to see, that helps us to at least have a foundation to understand why it is that evil exists. It's not going to answer every question you have. But my intent this morning is that we would walk away being better equipped to serve one another and even better prepared to suffer ourselves. Because as I said, if there's one thing that you can count on, you will suffer. You will suffer. And so this morning I want to begin uh, with some failed arguments and then give what I believe is the biblical theological argument and then turn to some counsel from the scriptures for how we prepare and help others navigate suffering ourselves. So first, failed arguments. Okay, so failed arguments. The first there is the naturalist conundrum. The naturalist conundrum. So there are different problems of evil that need to be addressed. Maybe some of you have had a conversation on the street or with a, a, a person who professes not to believe in God. I don't believe God exists. What do they believe? I believe only matter exists, right? The naturalist. Only things that you can see, you can hear, you can taste, you can touch. Only these things exist, and they have their existence, you know, you go way, 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 way back, and it just kind of came about randomly through some cosmic accident. And now things just kind of carry on, and, and maybe in a million years things will change too, but we don't know, right? So this is the naturalist. And as I said, there are different problems of evil. The Christian problem of evil must work to reconcile the goodness and power of God with the evil that exists. But the atheist or the naturalist also has a problem of evil to deal with, and that is the problem of how do they even ground what evil is. They have no basis upon which to say that is good and that is wicked. Okay, so just as you think, like, okay, yes, it's a difficult problem for us to untangle. But every worldview has to wrestle with this problem. And the naturalist or the atheist claims that because only material, uh, material matter is all that exists, that this universe originates not by any decree of God or an intelligent creator even, but by chance, and it continues on as it always has, 
Well, then the problem for the naturalist is known formally as the grounding problem. They have no ground to stand on to say, that is good, that is not. So how, how does a person who believes that everything came up randomly from no intelligent, transcendent authority that then we can all of a sudden arrive at morality? You can't, right? Because morality is not a thing. It's not a material thing, is it? It's not something that you can taste, feel, touch. You can see it enacted, but it's not actually a thing. It is actually more or less even what Paul would call, uh, you know, these matters of like elementary principles or spiritual principles. They are, they are real, and yet they're not material. And so the materialist has a problem of saying, well, h- how do we get from A to B in terms of morality? How do we get from everything existing by some random chance to, well, that, that's not right. And so they're faced with two, basically, options. They can have moral nihilism, which is saying that good and evil are purely subjective and thus there is no law. So you do whatever you want to do, whatever feels best for you to do. I'll do whatever I feel is best for me. You know, universe don't care. It's just kind of randomly taking survival of the fittest. So that's moral nihilism. Or, as is the case for most people, in order to live in this world, you recognize that doesn't work, does it? That doesn't work to be a moral nihilist. So there needs to be some kind of moral realism. That is, it's, there is some kind of objective right and wrong. And that's the only way that the world works. And deep down, every person knows that. Right? God has given every person a conscience, which even nags at them and is like, yeah, no, that's, that's wrong, and this is right. Now, people can suppress that truth, as we've talked about a lot. But it's an impossibility to navigate God's world apart from morality. And so, even the atheist who rejects God, who rejects some transcendent authority, has to deal with the fact that morality exists, and it must exist. And yet, where do they get their basis for what is right and wrong? Uh, A book that I've been reading this week, by Scott Christensen, fairly big book, um, Why Evil and Suffering. He says, objective moral standards imply moral obligations, and moral obligations are fundamentally relational. The standard for moral imperatives must be a personal lawgiver who is unequivocally free of the potential for moral corruption. That is, there is, there needs to be a personal God, not just a God, But that's the thing. So this leaves out even other theistic religions that don't have any kind of interpersonal relationship within God himself. So only the Trinitarian God can ground morality because we see this connection between morality and even relationships. And you know that, right? Morality is not just some bare thing. It impacts relationships. Um, And thus, love must first exist within God himself which demands then a relationship with himself. I just point you back to a sermon that Pastor Rob preached uh, a few months ago from John 1. John 1, really describing then these, kind of these Trinitarian relations that take place. Um, and so only the triune God can serve as an objective basis for determining good and evil in the first place. So... That's kind of the problem of evil for the naturalist. There's lots more we could say about it. But they, they can't ground morality based in random chance. 
We need a personal, what we'd say is a triune God in order to ground morality, in order to determine this is good, this is not. So that's the first, but let's turn now to addressing the problem of evil from the Christian perspective and another, what I'd say, is a failed attempt. Um, many Christians, they automatically refer, revert to what's called the free will argument. The free will argument. Uh, the argument summarized states, God created the world and chose to limit his power of control by giving humans the freedom to choose whatever they want to do or not to do. The freedom, to, the power to choose otherwise. Thus absolving God of any culpability for evil and serving as the basis for his just judgment against people for their free refusal to obey him. Now, what I want to acknowledge is that we recognize, as we're going to look here in a few minutes, we recognize that humans are moral agents. There is moral responsibility, and thus God is just when he judges them. It's not that, oh, well, they didn't choose to do that. No, they chose to do that, they, but they chose according to a nature, right? They chose according to their even corrupt, uh, their corrupt nature. But basically, this argument looks to get God off the hook by saying God opened himself up, intentionally opened himself up to risk in that he didn't know how his creatures were going to respond, what they would decide. And so God is sort of like trying to figure out, you know, the best way to navigate this world. But because he values freedom so much, in his creatures, he opens himself up to risk that they're going to make all sorts of evil decisions, and that's exactly what happened. So it seeks to get God off the hook that way. Um, but there's several problems with this response. First, let's say, most importantly, it lacks biblical support. Though humans are responsible and culpable for their actions, God is clearly revealed as sovereign even over the particulars, not just the happenings the general happenings of the universe, even over the particular hearts of men. So, God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. That includes such things as the falling of sparrows to the ground in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, the rolling of dice, Proverbs 16.33, the decisions of kings, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The failing of sight, so there you have even your, your bodily health, the suffering of saints, and even the hardening of hearts. Remember, God, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? So there is a, God is not just merely, you know, outside of it and saying, oh, well, I didn't know what was going to happen. No, in his plan and his purposes, he actually decreed in some sense that evil would exist and that people would make these wicked decisions, that there would be suffering. So it's not, it lacks biblical support to say that God just opened himself up to risk, that he doesn't know the future, and that, you know, he didn't know what was going to happen. No, no, no. He's planned and purposed even all these things. Now, we're going to have to get into answering, dealing with how we answer that. But secondly, um, what I'd say is the possibility to choose otherwise is not necessary for a person to be free. Is God free? Is God free? Yeah, he's free, right? Can God choose to do otherwise than to act righteously? No, right? So in order to be free, 
does not mean that you, should, that you can have the power to choose to do otherwise. That's what libertarian freedom is in terms of the kind of formal argument. But God is free, and yet he cannot choose to sin. He acts always according to character. Okay? Um, next, I'd say uh, this argument doesn't answer the question why natural evil exists. So earthquakes, diseases. So we've got moral evil. Those are like the sinful decisions and actions of people. Then there's natural evil, which are like natural disasters. Um, why even these things occur under God's guidance. And um, Next, I'd say it does not fit, this version of freedom does not fit with what we know will be the case for people in the future. So in heaven, will you be able to sin? So you cannot choose to do other than honor the Lord in heaven, can you? And yet, we would say that that is actually when we are most free, right? When we are glorified, we are most free. And yet, once again, it shows that freedom does not necessarily mean the power to choose the opposite, to choose good or to choose evil. No, actually, true freedom, even as we would describe it in the Bible, is the freedom to pursue God, to honor the Lord. That's actually true freedom. Uh, unhindered by sin, unhindered even from the desire to sin. So, that, that's, that's one, I'd say, uh, failed argument, is the free will argument, based, just based on what we see in the Scriptures. Now, I want to turn to what I think is probably a, a better argument, and then turn to some kind of, kind of pastoral, um, pastoral counsel. So, this is what's known as the greater glory theodicy. The greater glory theodicy. Uh, the argument states that God freely decrees that evil and suffering exist for the ultimate purpose of his glory and the eternal good of his people. Uh, again, Scott Christensen, he lays down three premises and a conclusion. So this is kind of how you do formal arguments. The greater glory theodicy. The first premise, God's ultimate purpose in freely creating the world is to supremely magnify the riches of his glory to all his creatures, especially human beings, who alone bear his image. So that's premise one. Premise two, God's glory is supremely magnified in the atoning work of Christ, which is the sole means of accomplishing redemption for human beings. Premise three, redemption is unnecessary unless human beings have fallen into sin. Number four, the conclusion, therefore, the fall of humanity is necessary to God's ultimate purpose in creating the world, namely his glory. So what we have to see is that God is not under obligation to even create the world. Right? God has no obligations outside of himself. Okay? But yet once God decreed to create the world, based on the narrative of, of, of Scripture, we have to conclude that it seems that God, in his eternal decree, in his eternal purposes, noted that the greatest way to glorify himself was through the redemption that would be accomplished by his son for sinful humans, which of course required the fall in that sense. Right? So we're actually backing up here to what is the end for which God created the world? Again, I point you back to Pastor Rob's sermon uh, a few months ago. The end for which God created the world is 
not ultimately your comfort. It actually has nothing to do ultimately with us. The end for which God created the world is His glory. It is His glory to display His magnificence, His majesty. And somehow, in the mystery of God's providence, He determined that what would most glorify Him was sending the Son to accomplish redemption for a wicked and sinful people. Right? So, we have to conclude, based on the entire narrative of Scripture, that the, that the answer to the problems of evil is ultimately traced back to somehow this glorifies God, and yet simultaneously, the amazing thing is, simultaneously the glory of God and the eternal good of His people, they go together. Right? The glory of God and the eternal good of His people are not separate things. God is glorified in doing good to his people. So the early church pastor, Ambrose, he wrote a hymn, and one of the lines of that hymn reads, O assuredly necessary sin of Adam, which has been blotted out by the death of Christ, O fortunate fall, which has merited such and so great a redeemer. And thus throughout church history, many have echoed the seemingly absurd words, O Felix culpa, which is Latin for, O fortunate fall. We don't, we don't think of it in that way. It's kind of weird, right? But the point is not that sin and evil is inherently good. We need to be able to objectively say that is wicked and God hates it. Right? God hates evil. And yet, in God's purposes, that fall, that evil, that suffering even serve as then the dark backdrop against which the brilliance of his power, his love, his mercy shine, and through which God is most glorified. Now, I'd say that this maybe lacks a compelling luster to it. It, it probably lacks like, okay, yeah, theologically, maybe I get that. But I would argue that that is because, and I, I include myself here, that is because we think of God in very mediocre ways. God rests too inconsequentially upon us, to paraphrase David Wells. We think too lightly of God. We think in very man-centered ways. And yet Paul says in Romans 11, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And this is right after he's talked about God's decrees to, to save some and not save others election, right? He says all these things, these things that are mysterious to us in many ways, everything, good, evil, suffering, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We are not the center of the universe. And as long as we think we will, we will think that God owes us something better, right? And, and, and that's often how we function is we think, oh, God owes me a better state in life. God is most chiefly concerned about His glory. As I said, His glory is welded together with the good of His people since He is most glorified in the salvation of sinners through the work of His Son, which is then applied by His Spirit. So there's several biblical examples. You have them there on your page. Genesis chapter 50, 
We see here God permitting, not, not just permitting evil, but willing or decreeing it, and yet people are still responsible, culpable for their decisions. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph, after being sold into slavery by his brothers, brought into Egypt, uh, brought down even into prison, falsely accused, treated unjustly. Eventually, he's brought out and he's made second in command, even next to Pharaoh. And Joseph testifies before his brothers that he trusts that God was using their evil intents and actions for good. So notice what he says in verse 20. As for you, you meant or you intended evil against me, but God meant it or intended it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you see, Joseph's brothers are guilty. Their purpose was to do evil, right? And yet God, his ultimate purpose was to even use through this evil to bring about good, even through Joseph's humiliation, which led to his exaltation. And that brought about the literal physical salvation of thousands of people in Egypt as Joseph uh, came up with this plan to store the resources so that they had stuff available for the famine. So you see this God glorifying himself and bringing about the good uh, even through evil actions of people. Next, turn to Isaiah chapter 10. So we're in Isaiah, uh, preaching through Isaiah for Advent. Isaiah prophesies that God is going to judge the rebellious people of Israel by sending the Assyrians. And notice in Isaiah 10 verse 5 how the Assyrians are described. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So does this describe a God who is distant, who doesn't know what's happening, who, who just is leaving people to do what they want? No, no. This is a God who is actually using the Assyrians to do actual evil, wicked things, but they are like a rod. He's wielding them like a, a rod in his hand. And so, yet, later on, you read that Assyria, God is going to hold Assyria guilty for their sins, that he's going to judge the Assyrians. So again, you have divine sovereignty, human responsibility. The climax of this all is what we see in the New Testament. So turn to Acts chapter 2. The New Testament fulfillment of God using evil actions for men to bring about his greatest glory and our greatest good as his people is most clearly Jesus' own path of suffering through which he accomplished the salvation of his people. Like Joseph, Jesus endured unjust treatment at the hands of his own people, even his brothers. Listen to these passages in the book of Acts. So Peter, in Acts chapter 2, says, Jesus, in verse 22 and 23, says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, now turn over to Acts chapter 4, where we see very similarly, 
Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. The church is praying, beginning in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the greatest evil in history, the most unjust treatment of a human being in history, namely the death of the perfect Son of God, was predestined. It was planned by God before he even created the world. It was predestined that he would die, and yet the authors here tell us that he was killed by the hands of lawless men. And those men, if they did not repent, will answer for that on the day of judgment. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. So what we see here then, what my point here is that God, as the sovereign one, evidently stands behind all things that happen, good and evil. And he does so for his glory and for the good of his people. There's lots of other goods that are accomplished even through suffering. We could talk about, some people talk about the soul, um, the soul-making good. You know, in other words, that God works and builds our character through suffering. So Romans chapter 5, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So you have this, God is able to use and ordain suffering for the ultimate good of his people. The clearest, some passage of this, Romans 8, of course, right? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, that's an important qualification. It's for those who love God. These are true believers. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So for those whom God calls to salvation, all things, and that all things has to include even the suffering that you're enduring. All things work together for good. Now there's much more we could say about it, but what I want to turn to for the next just 10 minutes here as we round out is what I actually think is the, the most important. So those are, those are biblical, theological, even intellectual kind of thoughts that we process and go through. We see God's sovereignty, human responsibility, God's glory as the chief end, the, the end for which God created the world, and how that even is welded together with the eternal good of his people. Okay, so, so these are some foundations that we can stand on and must stand on. But for the rest of our time, I want to offer some counsel and hopefully even some encouragement derived from God's own counsel to those who are suffering and asking, why, Lord? Or in the language of the prophets or the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Because there is that sense in which we are all asking that question. So the first is how then should we as Christians prepare in advance for evil and suffering? And the first, I'd say, is with creaturely humility and faith. We need creaturely humility and faith that recognizes that God is God and we are not. That there is the reality of mystery. That there is the reality that our minds cannot comprehend all of the mysteries and the secret things that belong to God. 
that there are things that God knows and only God knows that we cannot know. And so it's a, it's a recognition of our creaturely finitude. We need to have creaturely humility and faith that embraces a proper form of mystery that God has revealed enough to us that we can know him and trust him with good reason, but he has not revealed to us the secret things which belong to him. Remember Job. Job is kind of the classic text of, of a person that we see that Job teaches us that there is such a thing as innocent suffering, in a sense. Job was a sinner, but the reason God put suffering into his life and allowed even Satan some measure of freedom to do what he wanted with Job and his family is not because he was punishing Job for his sin. So this wasn't a consequence of his sin. God granted this suffering to Job to teach Job. And Job doesn't curse God. Job says right at the very beginning, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet you read through the book of Job and you see that yeah, he's still wrestling with things. It's hard. Sometimes he actually feels like just giving up in life altogether. And of course, his friends come there and they give him all sorts of uh, foolish counsel. But Job is questioning, he's lamenting, even with strong language to the Lord. And yet, the Lord is bringing him on this journey all the way to the last few chapters of the book, beginning in chapter 38 through chapter 42. And what happens there? He tells Job, to man up and listen up. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like, you know, gentle counsel. No, Job, you need to listen to me. Job, did you, uh, did you set the galaxies in place? No. Job, did you create, have you ever um, created a hippopotamus? No. Job, are, are you able to, did you etch out the depths of the sea? Did you put the borders around the oceans? Do you keep everything contained? In other words, Job, do you keep this universe running? Who's in charge here? And so Job, he comes to the end not with answers to all of his questions. That's the thing. He doesn't actually get answers to why it was that God allowed suffering. But what he saw there was God. And his response then was, I repent in dust and ashes. Because he had these improper views of that God owed him even answers to his toughest problems. Job learned in the end that God is the Almighty and that he does all things well and that he has purposes behind them, even if he doesn't know. And so we need a creaturely humility that recognizes we're not going to know everything. We don't fully understand all of God's reasons. The second way I think we should prepare is with the recognition that God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate even here at Christmas, indeed, all throughout the year. God is not aloof or unaware of our suffering. That's the amazing thing about our God. He is not like, you know, Islam, they've got certain doctrine of sovereignty of God. He's transcendent. He's outside of, you know, he's kind of got an authority all of his own. And yet this God does not enter into the experience of his people. He, he does not suffer with and for his people. Pantheism, any kind of Eastern kind of pantheistic religion, how do they deal with evil? Well, they, don't, they either view it as some 
uh, illusion that needs to be escaped by some kind of mechanism. But Christianity tells us that God, in his love for those who are suffering, and even deserve to suffer because of their sin, he has sent his Son, God, with us. Only Christianity says that God's answer to the problem of evil comes from God himself. God himself who is with us, who would endure evil and suffering willingly in order to merit eternal life and glory for those who deserve eternal suffering. So we can take comfort in the fact that our God, who became a man, also asked the why question. He also asked the why question. What does Jesus say when he's on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked the why question. And so we have a God in Jesus Christ who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, in our suffering. He has walked the path. He is not unaware of what you're dealing with. He is not unaware of what it means to suffer. In fact, he is the one who has suffered the most and suffered true injustice. The third thing I'd say is we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the final day. Uh, we read through Little Pilgrim's Big Journey with the kids. Uh, and and the, uh, the second, second part of the book says the bitter must come before the sweet. The bitter must come before the sweet. And so we've got to recognize that we, we suffer now, but we don't lose heart, as Paul says. Our outward self, they're wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he can call these light momentary afflictions. It's not dismiss, dismissing the weightiness of it, but what he's saying is that you compare it to the weight of glory, and one day you're going to recognize that all of these things, they were light, and they certainly were momentary. And the fourth way to prepare is I'd say we can't isolate ourselves. You've got to do this together. This is why the church is so important. If you isolate yourself, you're going to be just left with your own thoughts, but God has given us brothers and sisters who can help us navigate the challenges. And so, just in conclusion, as we, in order to bear one another's burdens, that's what we're called to, bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep. Right? The first thing I'd say is, don't imitate the counsel of Job's friends. That's actually one of the lessons that you learn there. Job's friends, they did really well for the first few days when they shut their lips. They, they, were, they sat with Job in the dust and ashes and lamented with him that this is difficult. This is hard. And that there is something not right about this. And so what I'd say is, friends, rather than giving lectures, that's not our initial go-to response when people are suffering. We weep with those who weep. The most spiritual thing you can do is maybe prepare a meal for the person who's just lost their parent. Uh, it's to meet their very physical, practical needs. People need someone to be present, to pray with, to help them in the day-to-day -day things, to watch their children. Don't try to untangle all the philosophical knots. If the person asks, why has God done this? You don't need to try to answer all the whys and give cliche responses 
Like, God will use this for your good, even though that's true. But that's often not the time, right when they're in the throes of suffering. They need you to be present, to pray, and even to lament and recognize this is wrong. Because even as we recognize that God stands behind all things for his glory, we still objectively can say, this is hard. This is, th- that decision that that person made that led to these actions, that's a wicked, evil decision. And so, you can say, I don't know, and commiserate with them in the dust and the ashes. Uh, I would say that some forms of evil require immediate responses, immediate intervention, such as in cases of abuse. I also just say, as we care for one another, we've got to recognize different stages of grief. Now, there's no formula for that, but D.A. Carson writes this. He says, the bereaved Christian who suddenly starts lashing out with anger and resentment would not be written off as an apostate. The Christian who at this moment finds little comfort in the doctrine of the resurrection, so great is his sense of loss, is not to be berated and rebuked. What that means is that we're not saying we excuse sin. There's times for conversations. But you need to recognize that when people are suffering, that there's going to be these responses. That they come from the angst within. And so again, it's not the time to enter into, you know, rebuking that person for their incorrect theology at that point. Okay, so recognizing the stage of grief. And then the last thing I'd say is just to persevere in showing compassion. It's natural that once that an initial crisis has passed, people carry on, but those who suffered are left feeling alone. And so, I just encourage you, even this Christmas season, you know people in this church who are suffering. Uh, maybe you know someone in this church who's lost someone or been diagnosed with something or it's just been a really hard season for them. Well, to persevere in showing compassion even as our Savior sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Uh, keep track of potential hard days like holidays or birthdays, anniversaries. Reach out and give a phone call. Um, just, just make sure that we are bearing one another's burdens. Yes, we want to be speaking truth and love, but oftentimes the ministry of personal presence, or not oftentimes, all times the ministry of personal presence is a vital, uh, is a vital part of our communion and how we bear one another's burdens, and even deal with this very difficult problems of evil that are all around us. You see there on your workout, that's kind of all, there's, there's three resources that I would just point you to. Uh, there's a, a little book, it's a children's book. You can read it in five minutes. Called, The Moon is Always Round. The Moon is Always Round, written by Jonathan Gibson. Uh, it was written after the, the loss of their, um, their child. So the moon is always round. It, it, it answers in very simple, clear, biblical terms. Uh, gives us some foundations to think of how do we think of God in the midst of suffering. Next, I just say Tim Challies. Uh, read his blog posts. He's got a new book, Seasons of Sorrow, after the loss of his son here a couple years ago. And then Terry Stoffer's message, which he preached here on Romans 8 last uh, January at our conference. Terry and Juanita Stoffer, former, Terry was formerly a pastor here have gone through immense suffering. And yet, they have recognized that what actually got them through was a recognition, not of rejecting the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, but of embracing it, of standing firm upon what the scriptures teach of these things. And that's what ha- what's helped them 
navigate suffering. So those resources I point you to. As I said, there's no time for questions this morning because of the late start that we had. Feel free to jot them down, submit them to me, and we'll seek to answer some of those even next week. I'm going to close in prayer as we prepare now. So Father, as we have come through this challenging topic, we do ask that you would grant to us a spirit of compassion that would be uh, willing to bear one another's burdens. And even as we think of our great high priest, our sympathetic Savior, we thank you for him, and we thank you that he is coming again to make all things new, and that is our great hope. And so we look forward with expectancy even to the second advent of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.